Hi there. Thank you, thank you. I'm Chris Sarandon, in case you didn't recognize me. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast of Cooking by Heart, in which we talk to people about the vivid memories of the food they grew up with, and more importantly, the people and the stories behind those reminiscences. Uh, I'd like to welcome all the people who are listening to the podcast today, also the ones who are watching it. Well, they're not watching today, but they will be uh, on YouTube. But uh, I'd also like to welcome you guys to this sold out house here at the SHU Community Theater in downtown Fairfield, Connecticut. Thank you. So today, my special guest, uh, who you uh, probably don't need to have introduced, but I'm going to do it anyway, is Jacques Pepin, the winner of 16 James Beard Awards and the author of more than 30 cookbooks. Jacques Pepin is a chef, educator, television personality, and artist who has starred in 12 acclaimed PBS cooking series. His dedication to culinary education led to the creation of the Jacques Pepin Foundation, uh, we just spoke about it, and it's an extraordinary, extraordinary organization. Check it out online. And as the late Anthony Bourdain notes, in his foreword to Jacques' memoir, The Apprentice, whenever anything significant happens in the most transformative decades of American dining, Jacques Pepin was at the center of it. Magnifique. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jacques Pepin. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Well-deserved applause, I must say, Monsieur Papin. <laughs> you are too modest. Uh, I, I, we normally start my podcast by talking about provenance, where we're from. Right. And that's very important in your life, obviously. Can you talk a little bit about where I'm from? your hometown? I live in Connecticut. Here <laughs> <laughs> in Madison, Connecticut. But where you're originally oh, okay. from. Okay. Yeah, many years ago. Yeah, I came from a part of France near, uh, near the Alps, not too far from, uh, from Switzerland, called Bourg-en-Bresse, very well known for the chicken there, next to Lyon, and uh, my mother, uh, you know, went into the business. Actually, in my family, I can count 12 restaurants in all of the area, ah. 12 of them run by women. You know, I was the first male to go into that business. <laughs> it's true. but. Lyon, the part of France that I come from, is pretty well known for those formidable women who right. are like three-star restaurants, like La Mer Brasier and so forth. So it's pretty well known for that. Also, the area is well known for chickens as well, yeah, isn't it? absolutely. The, the breast chicken? Beautiful, white plumage, blue feet, a red cock, blue, blanc, rouge, the French flag color. Like your painting. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Can you talk a little bit about your mother and father? Growing up, when yes, you were a boy? Up, well, I was, I was growing up during the war, so when I was a, a kid. So my mother uh, ended up having a little restaurant. She was a waitress and then eventually opened a little restaurant. So I started cooking, working with them and my two brothers when I was 
five, six years old. Uh, by then, of course, my father had departed in the, in the resistance. He disappeared and, uh, uh, you know, for a few years. Interestingly enough, at the time, we didn't have the telephone. Of course, no television, no radio, right. no telephone, whatever. So uh, we were in Bourg-en-Bresse next to the, the railroad station, the big railroad station. And because of that, we were born the first time. And uh, I was in the garden with my grandmother and my two brothers. We had a communal garden that we went to do salad and so forth. And you're how old I, now, I at about, this point? About, about five and a half. Mm. And uh, so uh, no one was, uh, was uh, what, you know, impaired or anything. But then my father didn't know. He came back. He has no way of telephoning. And then we are not there. And then he find out that some cousin. Then we repair. They repair the place. And we get bombed again uh, a second time. And we were not there. And then when the German came, they blow out everything. that We had bombed again. So oh. three, three times it was destroyed. Three times we were not there. Yeah, for we those, of us, for those yeah. of us who are, uh, went through the war, I, I was very young, yeah. obviously, at the time. But uh, we, never, we have never had an experience of there being a landed war yeah, right. here. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it's extraordinary. It is. It is. When you stand, uh, I remember in the street and seeing the... German going down, walking down, that's, you know, you feel invaded, I mean. Of course, so of course. Now, now, your father was in the army, yes, during the war? Well, he, he, was, he was not in the army, he was in the resistance. I mean, he, he flew to the mountain to be in the resistance. Resistance, so, right, but yeah. that was after, right? He was in the right. army he first? Was in the army before. Right. right. And during the time that your father was away, can you talk a little bit about how your mother provided for the family? My mother was... Fantastic, I mean, this way she could. I remember the first time she took me, uh, we, we were already going to school when I was six years old, but during the vacation in summer, then she took me to a farm, took my brother to another farm. At least we had something to eat there. So we went on our bicycle, you know, so like 30, 40 miles, whatever, on the bicycle, and left me there. But she would do that. All the time, go to different farms, try to get a few eggs here, one thing or right. another. She really cooked, and very miserly in the kitchen. And that's probably from my mother. <laughs> she never wasted anything, but no one at the time, because I mean, food was very precious. And, uh, this is very much uh, uh, the experience of people who grew up poor, oh, because yes. you never wasted anything. Yeah, no, Same I, with my family. Right. Yeah. Yes, uh, certainly. Yes, that's very important. So I, uh, I remember uh, um, when I got married, and I was married 54 years, and I would cook something, and I go somewhere, and I had to walk in New York, whatever, and I come back, and my wife got something else. I said, why didn't you finish that in the back? So we started arguing with this, because never threw anything out. My, After a while, each time I came home, everything was cleansed. I don't know what you did with it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, my mother, my mother used to do the same thing. Whenever my mother and my aunt would go anyplace to eat, they would always take the bread with them because they said, they'll, they'll throw it away. Yeah, of course. Yes, and that, that's, that's a good point. I mean, you were talking about Anthony Bourdain there, and he, he talked about that in one of his book, Kitchen Confidential. When he started, and I say he's absolutely right. The stupid law, which is that you have a basket of bread in a restaurant and you don't even eat it. And if the table next to you say, can I have some of your bread, you will give it to them. 
If you don't give them that bread, it's got to go in the garbage. Right. But it has to go in the garbage. That's ridiculous. You know? Of course. It makes no sense at all. So. No. Now, thank... <laughs> right. Now, thank heavens, all, all, there are now programs in which food that is not used is then oh, yes, recycled. Right. right? Much more than it used to be, yes. Certainly, and that's a good thing. It's needed, too, you know, because most of the food... I mean, for me, when I buy food at the market, I look at the date, but even if it's five, six days, ten days later, usually it's still pretty good. I, mean, right. I don't really worry too much about that. Can you talk a little bit more about, uh, during those war years, how your mother provided for you guys? For yeah, your, a lot you of had, brothers. what, two brothers and two you? Two brothers, yes, two brothers. Uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, a lot of uh, root vegetable or stuff that we grew or that she could get into a farm. If she get eggs, she would, uh, I don't know what, what she did exactly with eggs, with, with a mixture of salt and, uh, salt and water to cure the eggs so they could stay like that for months. Uh, everything was kept in one way or the other. Right. This, you know, and uh, bread and, you know, that we use, we reuse. There is nothing which was uh, not used in one way or the other. I mean... What were, your, what were your favorite foods when you were a little boy, things that were, your mother was able to provide for you? Well, for a special holiday, I mean, certainly those dishes that, uh, you know, when you're a child, those tastes are very visceral, like they stay with you, you know, the rest of your life. And uh, regardless of where you're born, the smell of the kitchen when you're a child and uh, the taste of what your mother did, or aunt, uh, you know, I could close my eye, I work in the greatest restaurant in the world, I ate in the greatest restaurant, but, you know, if I close my eyes and eat my mother chicken with cream sauce, I said that's my mother chicken with cream mm -hmm. sauce. Also, uh, yesterday, I told you I was in New York with uh, Lydia Bastiani, she wanted me, she doing a new show and I went, she said, do something from your mother. So, so I did the egg Janet, I called egg ah. Janet. I named after my mother. She'd art cooked eggs. She cooked and then cut in half, take the yolk out and mash it up with a lot of garlic and parsley, a bit of milk, restuff the eggs, then saute the eggs, stuffed side down in a skillet with a bit of olive oil uh, to brown it, and with a bit of the stuffing left over and mustard, she does a mustard sauce so with it. So those are kind of visceral dishes, yes. which I remember as a child. Now, uh, you're, uh, so that we don't uh, shorten your father's contribution here. Oh, no. uh, talk a little bit about your father, because you, he yeah. was a lively character, yes? I have a recipe that I do, too, for my father, which is called fromage four, which means strong cheese. And uh, he used to do that, which is pretty common in Lyon. When we had leftover cheese, the cheese are like six weeks, three weeks, two weeks old, some uh, with mold on top, too. He would take all of those cheese, scrape out, the mold and all that, and soak it with usually uh, some, some bouillon from the soup or some right. white wine, and put it into a jar and put it into the cellar. And uh, it macerate there and eventually crush it into a paste uh, that uh, we use, we call fromage four. I do that now, of course, in the food processor. It takes two minutes, <laughs> leftover, right. leftover cheese, some, right. some garlic in it, white wine, you put, you have a pound and a half of cheese of a mixture of a, with cheese, goat cheese, any type of cheese, you scrape the mold, put that in there, and you can fill it up in a little container and freeze it. Otherwise, you spread it out on toast, 
and it's great this way, or under the broiler too, served with a salad, all that, to serve a salad in a restaurant with this around, now you can charge 15 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> now, how, I, I know kids are fond of sugar. How did she, sugar was in short supply during the war. Yes, it was in short supply, except for fruit, because it's always fruit in the Rhone Valley. We had a fair amount of fruit, and my mother would do all kind of... Uh, or confiture and jam and so forth with that. That usually was the kind of sweet we have would come from, uh, from sugar, from, from the fruit, you know. From fruit, sometimes beets as well? Oh, beets, oh yes, oh beets. Actually, yes, with beets she did a syrup. She cooked the thing, I don't know what she did, like uh, uh, almost like a, a brown uh, uh, kerosene, right. you know, that she did with me, and that's what we use as a sweetening agent. Uh, when you didn't have sugar, right. She did that with beets, yeah. And you, you talk also in, uh, in The Apprentice, by the way, this book is an extraordinary book that Jacques wrote a number of years ago, but that is just fascinating reading. It's really wonderful. And it's available, by the way, today. Uh, how about Mouvin Rouge? Yeah, so that yeah that's the, another thing my mother used to do when we killed, you know, killed a, a lamb or killed whatever animal, the lamb certainly, then uh, she used to keep the, the, the lung, I mean, Everything was used, all the offal and so in one way or the other. Right. But uh, yeah, at that time we had a little restaurant and uh, my father used to buy the wine in barrel. So when the wine was, we, my brother and I used to draw the wine and we had a piece of stick with a, a piece of pipe uh, uh, attached to it, which was attached about that much away from the bottom so that uh, you didn't you know, draw the wine directly to the bottom because there was deposit and so forth. But when that was used, then the rest of the wine my mother would use to do a mouvin rouge, a red wine sauce with the lung, the lung of the, the, the animal, and so right. forth, which was uh, quite interesting too, because I remember showing that to a friend of mine many, many years ago here in, in, in Connecticut, and uh, she said, oh no, I, I used the lung. So she had the lung and she cooked it, except she didn't do it as my mother would blow into the lung to reinflate the lung. Right. And so she didn't do that. So she put it into, and they'd start blowing up, blowing up, blowing up, <laughs> to lead the what? <laughs> Explode. Like an horror movie. You, you also mentioned in the book something called la crasse de beurre. La crasse de beurre, yeah, right. When we cook, well, again, if my mother could get butter too, then she would cook it uh, to preserve it longer. And as you cook it, the, the milk solid uh, will cook, in the, and you, you have that, uh, that brown crust which come on the outside too. They call that la crasse du beurre, the dirt of the butter, and that was a great trait on bread. It was very nutty and all that too, so the crasse du beurre, yeah. That was a treat. It was a treat. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to go back to one second to, to your father, because you also tell a story about when your father, who was very spirited, yes? Oh, yeah. And, and he would, uh, he would, he would, you describe him almost as a Zorba-like character. Oh, yeah, exactly, yes. And he did something with walnuts? He did something with nuts? Oh, yes. Some, somehow, I don't know how he could do that. He, 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 he blew walnut on the wall to break them, and they always exploded and break. And he never break anything. My brother and I tried a couple of times, broke a window, and I said, I don't have to do it anymore. I don't know how he did it. Your father could have been a pitcher, a baseball pitcher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, uh, 
the, the routine was that in the summertime when you were out of school, your mother would take you to the country, yes? Right. To, to farms. What farm we did, and at some point it was uh, the, the priest, I think the church there. I remember uh, the time we went, the first time I went into the Alp in the mountain, uh, and it was done by the Red Cross, actually, and the priest. And, uh, yeah, they put my brother in one farm and me in another farm uh, a few miles away the first time when we were in the mountain. And uh, we met once a week. There was one little church for both villages, but especially one oven for both villages. And, uh, like, once a month or once every two weeks, and the, the farmer would cook their bread. So they cook for, like, 48 a, hours. A they big oven? do their bread and bring it to that oven, which cook for like two days, and uh, there was not even any yeast at the time. When they finished cooking the bread, they take a piece of the, the dough, put it into a jar with water, and put it in the cellar, and it stays there for a week and a half, two weeks, mm -hmm. and then after they start with that mixture of water and flour, and the only flour, I mean the, the yeast, the natural yeast in the flour will start bubbling, right. but then die pretty fast. So they do a re-wetting, they call it. They put more flour and right. more and it does it again, and does it again three, four times until the dough was done. So it was a long process. And they did those big bread like this, which they put on the, on the shelf in the farm, like plate against the wall. You know, you <laughs> hear that for like two weeks, and, uh, and still the bread was great. And what was, the, what, what was it like around the table when you were, when you were at the farm? What was the routine? Well, the, the routine, it was... Well, in that particular farm, it, it was in the, in the mountain of uh, France, of, of, of the Alps. And at that time, we started the meal with cheese here, which I'd never done in my life no. in France. Never, uh, because they do cheese, they are kind of Swiss cheese. So we started like that, and usually a big soup after. But it was maybe in that farm that you mentioned the, the table. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, so we, we had in that old farm. Uh, the part of France that I come from where we have those chicken, poulet de bresse, uh, are fed only with corn. So we eat corn in France, uh, in, in my part of France, many other parts of France they don't eat corn, but we do. And uh, dry corn, they do a, a you know, corn meal. And then we do a, a soup called les gaudes. Les gaudes, my mother used to do it, was simply water and salt, and that mixture... A uh, cornmeal? Cooked in, it, ...cooked in it for like an hour, you know slowly, and so forth. And uh, they would, uh, in that farm particularly, it was very thick uh, uh, um, oak tree, you know, the table like that. And there would be an annotation in the table about two, three inches deep. Like, and that was the plate, you know. That's what I mean. wow. So the soup, they would put that in there like at least 15, 20 minutes before you eat. And, and the, the, the whole top would become a crust and kind of break the crust, and then you put cold milk on top of that. Oh. Like, the fresh milk from the cows, yes? Yeah. Sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but you also, you also, one of your jobs was herding the cows, right? Oh, yes, at that time, sure, in the, in the mountain, yes. We herd the cow, and uh, yeah, that was, that was fun, you know. Did you, did you have to milk the cows as well? Oh, yes, of course. The first time I milked the cow, I think I mentioned it in that, in that book, I was maybe, uh, that's when, uh, in another farm, my mother took me for the summer there and left me, and I was well, six years old, whatever, so I was pretty sad. But then the farmer took me by the hand, said, let's go to the, to the you know, 
to see the cow. So we go to the barn and here was a cow, which I'd never been that close, and she put my hand on the tits and showed me how to milk it. So I milked. First time that I milked a cow, another bowl of uh, fresh milk, which was kind of for me on top, lukewarm, so probably changed my life and made me a cook. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when you were, how old did you go go to school, to the lycée? Well, I went to the lycée. I left when I was uh, 12 and a half, 13. We, in France, we had to go to school until, uh, to finish primary school until age 14. But I was in that class when I was 12 or 13. So I left at 13 and went into apprenticeship. Yes. I, I mean, uh, but before, I before the exam. So but far. before that, didn't you go away to school, to the lycée? Well, uh, you and Roland? Once, yes. When in Bourg-en-Bresse, it was... Uh, yeah, that was when my father had left first. My mother couldn't keep us, so we went to a, to a it was a priest, uh, uh, um, kind of Jesuit uh, school, too, which was really, really tough. What was the food like there? Horrible. I mean, there are so. <laughs> I remember we had one piece of bread a day, and we banged it on the table. It was hot, but some animal coming out of it, too. I mean, we still ate it, too. But, oh, I remember that there because I was starting exchanging things, and uh, I, I was from town, so I didn't have much uh, access to, to country, but a lot of the other students, they had parents who were in the country. Some had a jar of honey, some had a saucisson, you know, a salami or stuff like that. So I would uh, try to exchange one thing with the other, and I remember one time, I think I exchanged one thing with one honey on one side, and on the other side it was some type of salted lard, Whatever, but I put it, I went to beg on one side of a piece of bread, they gave it to me, I turned it on the other side to go beg. <laughs> and I got something which didn't really work out too well, really. <laughs> so you, you alternated treats. Oh, yeah. Sweet and sour. Exactly. Kind of. <laughs> so try to exchange. I exchanged that, I remember, uh, for uh, a knife that uh, my brother had given me so to get... It was, I think it was his communion, his first communion or whatever. So the whole family uh, came to, to Bourg, and I don't know what I did, but I screwed up in school, so I was stuck. Uh, the priest said, no, you, uh, I cannot go into vacation. So they came to see me in the school to say, hello, the whole family, but I couldn't get out. So, and that's where I gave the salami. I had exchanged a salami for my knife to give it to him for it. <laughs> right. So that was... Right, did you Still a did, bad memory. Did you did you sneak <laughs> did you sneak the salami at all while you were waiting for your oh, brothers? Yes, yes. <laughs> and when I ate all of the old side. <laughs> yes. So then so then uh, this is I, I think uh, probably incomprehensible to a lot of Americans, but the fact that you when you were thirteen, you knew that this was the life you wanted to live. Yes? Uh, well, By the time you were that age, I know your brother was not interested in, in being... Right, right. I mean, life was quite different than now, you have to realize. We didn't have television, we didn't have the telephone, we didn't have uh, radio or anything like this. So life was very simple in a sense. My father was a cabinet maker, my mother was a cook. So I was going to be a cabinet maker or a cook. <laughs> Never thought that I could be I don't know, a lawyer or... Doctor right, that didn't really exist. Right, so. and and also she had a succession of restaurants. Right, once yeah, you she, left Brest, those, those little restaurants that she she opened, repaired and right. closed and tried to sell it. Yeah, she was very good at that. And you worked in the restaurants when you weren't in school. Well, 
my brother and I all work in the restaurant. I mean, I would never have gotten home and say, I'm bored. I would have said, we're what? <laughs> are you kidding? Your father take me to clean up the bottle or peel potato or do one thing. Oh, no, we try to escape. Well, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But there's one thing, the, 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 the first restaurant that she had, the uh, Hotel L'Amour. Hotel L'Amour, yeah. Right, was, was quite, a, quite an extraordinary kind of community gathering place, wasn't it? Yes, it was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, is that the first time that we had the telephone there, because we got the telephone because we had the, the little inn, uh, the little restaurant of the village. At that point we would receive messages, and my brother and I would go up to the country to give those messages out of that the telephone that we had. Yes, so we had chicken there also, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, raising the chicken uh, with a peel of vegetable or going to get clover in the, in the field, my brother and I to feed chicken. Uh, all that was part of our life, as well as, uh, as, well as uh, you know, that's probably where I killed the first chicken that I killed, which kind of traumatized me, but... Mm -hmm. uh, my brother, I think, was holding his head, so I cut his head off. Chicken left with his, with his neck going all over the place. Running around, I know. Yeah. yeah. There was a... The rabbit, chicken, too. Yeah, that's what, that's what our life. Yeah. There was an abattoir behind my father's restaurant oh, yeah. for chickens. Oh, yeah. And same thing. We would drive up to the back of the restaurant, and the, first the smell. Oh, yeah. I remember the smell very, very strongly, but also the fact that you would see... Literally, chickens running around. <laughs> my mother would kill the chicken by cutting under the tongue, you know, like that, holding it and uh, letting the blood go into a little bowl with a tablespoon of vinegar so that it doesn't coagulate because she was going to use that in the sauce and nothing was damaged at all. And then we pluck it, she cut it right under the neck and under the body and then pull the, the neck out and in the skin of the neck then she stuff it to do a sausage with mm. get wet. Uh, and roast it to... Yeah. Use everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, you, you, you when you were, uh, at that time in your lives, you, you and your brother also foraged a lot, didn't you? Oh, yes. Mushrooming, I mean, you know, mushrooming, uh, wild leek, uh, yeah, all kind of, all kind of things. Yeah, that was part of... Uh, you, you, you tell a great story about uh, Picking some uh, grapes and cherries and peaches where you had to climb the tree? Well, yeah, and the farmer came. And <laughs> he should have with a gun. Uh, they had gun with, uh, with salt in it. Instead of bullets, they put coarse salt in it. But when you get it in the leg, I mean, you, have it. you can feel yeah. it. My brother was on top of the tree with a branch, and he broke the branch and broke the tree, and you know, the farmer was at that time, yes. We know we pick up a lot. Of, we pick up a lot of dandelion, for example, and uh, my mother cooked it too. But that usually do the salad with it. I still do pick it up in where I am in in Madison mm -hmm. in the spring. Yes, that's, that's the rite of passage, you know, to do the dandelion in the spring. And you also had an adventure with your father once. Yes, picking mushrooms. Oh yeah, well, pick up mushroom in the wood. Or the farmer would put a sign. Uh, watch out, uh, 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 the, 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 not the cow, but the, the, the bull, you know, a fierce bull will attack you. But they put it all over to prevent people from coming to pick up mushroom in the woods, so we didn't really pay too much attention. But at that time, my, mother had, my father had a basket of mushroom, and the, the, <laughs> the bull started going back and moving. <laughs> <laughs> 
to my father, run. I had to throw that basket of mushroom above the, the fence, you know, and right. dive above the fence. <laughs> Just, yeah, that was. All right, so then, so then she moved on to a series of other restaurants, right? She had a second restaurant. Yes, right. Uh, where uh, uh, there was a, a lawn bowling oh, yes. court there. We, we, we did, well, we play something similar to bachi ball called pétanque in, in French, and uh, that, to, yes, my father had with the restaurant, you know, six or eight games where people came to play and right. wine and eat sandwich and stuff like this. So, yes, my mother was very involved in this. And, uh, but, but weren't you and your brother also involved in preparing some of the food for the players? Oh, yeah, of course, yes. Oh, yeah, I mean, my mother cooked, yeah. Sandwiches? Sandwiches. I remember those old guys would play bull until like 2 o'clock in the morning, four people against four, and in Lyon we'd drink the pot, the pot de vin, the pot de vin a pot is 46 centiliter, uh, just about half, half a liter. Right. And uh, six with a pot of Beaujolais, particularly in the spring. So the pot of Beaujolais. So they drank so much of it that my father didn't even count them by the bottle. He counted them by the meter. <laughs> he put that there. Uh, one meter of Beaujolais, two liter. Of... <laughs> wow. <laughs> they could drink. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and then the family moved to Lyon, yes? Yes, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then there was a restaurant there, then there was another restaurant, a, a succession, Le, Le Pelican? Yeah, yeah, Le Pelican with the second <laughs> right. one, right. right. Uh, and uh, it, there's also a wonderful kind of picture of, it, the, uh, as you describe it in the book, of your going to the market with your mother in the morning, oh, where yes. she would wake you up. Yeah, because, you know, even at that time, she had a restaurant, she didn't have a refrigerator. It didn't exist. She had a, uh, uh, an ice box, so that she bought a block of ice, put it in the corner, and that's what she used for the chicken. She bought a couple of chicken a day, maybe a couple of steak, two, and some fish. Uh, she always bought so that she would run out of it during the day, because at the end of the day, that was it. You know, no refrigeration. We, well, we ate what was left over. But the vegetable, you know, at that time, the word organic did not exist. Everything was <laughs> local, uh, yeah. from farmer, uh, local too. And my mother would walk. It was the market along the, the, the Saône River in Lyon. So it's a, a, an open market. We started at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning until like 8, 10. So she would come around 7. I mean, my brother and I would come before going to school. We'd go with her to carry the... the, the Everything the, back the for the restaurant. Because we didn't have a car. It was about 6, 8 blocks from the restaurant. But she would walk the market, close to half a mile, maybe not quite a quarter of a mile, and then buy on her way back. Everyone knew her, and she would buy that case of mushroom because it was black, and she knew the guy cannot keep it until tomorrow, so she tried to get it for half price or, or the ripe tomato or stuff, and, and then get back to the restaurant, start peeling vegetables too, cooking for the day, and then the day after, again, everything was, was <laughs> daily and so forth. I know. Yeah. Um, one of the things that also struck me was, and, you know, we talk about uh, the difference in prices between then and now, and obviously it was a long time ago, but uh, there was a, the, the family, the, your mother's restaurant, there was a prefix meal right. for how much? It was one dollar. When I came to America, uh, it was uh, five francs. Five francs was one dollar. Right. And at that point, you had a first course, 
like an artichokes or a salad of tomato or a piece of melon, then a mancourt, vegetable always separated, uh, mancourt maybe a stew too, or a piece of fish too, vegetable separated, and a dessert or a piece of cheese and a dessert, a carafe of wine, uh, service, tip included, one dollar. One dollar. My father, my father had the same thing in our restaurant where there was a prefix lunch right. with an appetizer, a, a, a meal, and a dessert for 75 cents. Yeah, oh yeah. Those were the days. Right. <laughs> so then, here we are now, and you are in Lyon, and it's time to apprentice. Right. Um, who made that decision? Did you make the decision? Yeah, I wanted to go into apprenticeship, and then my mother started asking, and Hotel de l'Europe in Bourg-en-Bresse, where I was born, it's a very famous old hotel, beautiful right. hotel, and it happened that the chef there, uh, she went to school with uh, 30 years before, mm -hmm. and uh, she, so she contacted him, and they, they were doing apprentice, so I came there as an apprentice, it was a place where the kitchen was totally open, in the, the big hallway when you came in of the hotel, you could see the kitchen open, all white, beautiful too, so it was very exciting for me. All kind of uh, new thing that I learned there, new machine or equipment or that. And there was a, a the stove was... Yeah, the stove was a center stove, yeah, you walk all around the stove, and of course at that time it was with wood and coal. So what did they call the stove? The piano. Ah! Yeah, the piano, you work the piano, yeah. <laughs> right. like, uh, so and your job when you first got there was what? Well, to, to, to light up the stove and keep it... Uh, keep it going. Keep it going very often too. And then a lot of uh, plucking, eviscerating chicken and uh, skinning rabbit, uh, uh, skilling fish and uh, boning out, you know, all that type of work. You work, uh, the chef, I mean, the way of learning at the time was quite different. Uh, the chef would tell you, do this, and you would never have said, why? You would have said, because I just told you. So that was, yeah. So uh, you learn in a different way. You learn, you do, and at that age, it's probably fine. And after a year, at least a year that I was there, uh, he called me you at the time, and all of a sudden he called me Jacques, and mm. he said, tomorrow you start at the stove. I started at the stove. I'd never been close to the stove except to put coal in it. So I didn't know that I would, but through some time of osmosis, you know, you learn to, so I knew how to work at the stove, and I started working the stove, yes. How did they, because I, I know one of the things that struck me about all of your writing is the fact that uh, all through the, your career, particularly in France, that heat was extremely high all the oh, yeah. time. Oh, yes. And that how was, the, how was the heat regulated? How did you regulate the heat? Well, the, the, that's a, a good point. The heat was already, you push a little bit of the coal on one side, a little bit on the other side. Like, for example, in the afternoon, you shut up the place from 2 to 5, usually. I mean, still in France, when I left France, we still work in two, 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 uh, two times. So work starting at 8.30 in the morning, work until 2, start from 2 to 5.30, start at 5.30 to 10. Right. You know. So during the afternoon, we had 6 or 8 opening on that stove, a big stove. So you only keep one, and the other one you let it die, and you keep one so that at five o'clock you take a little bit of coal of this one to put in the other one to start the stove again. Right. Uh, so the whole uh, working of the stove doesn't exist anymore. But it was a big deal, because if you work the stove and it's 
12 o'clock in the morning, and you put too much coal at that point, this, people start sitting down at 12.30, and the, 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 the stove is not lukewarm, but it's not very hot, and the chef will get crazy. So you gotta calculate so that by the time people sit down, the stove was really full blast, and then you just add a little bit to keep it this way until like two o'clock when they start that. So as much art as science. Oh, yeah, I mean, the working of the stove was a yeah. big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and how, was, how did they know what the temperature was? What the proper temperature was for what they were cooking? There was no temperature gauge. No thermometers? Just put your hand at it. Your hand? <laughs> no, no, indeed. So you have that big rectangular box, which is the stove. You have three ovens. Three or four, I forgot. Yeah. But anyway, you open the door here, the guy opened the door on the other side, it's the same tunnel, you know. And uh, I'm cooking a souffle here, and, and, the, and the guy is cooking a piece of fish on the other side. Uh, the oven may be totally red on the side, maybe five, six hundred degrees. So mm. I put the food closer to the wall on the other side. I open the door, I put a, a, a spoon there on, on, on the door of the stove to keep it open. To, so you move the food like this. Colder, harder too. Right. There was no like, uh, you know, you put the the thermostat. Yes, right. You don't have this, or you don't have a, something to stick in the meat to check. Yeah. Right. Go take a nap. Put it on thirty minutes. No, that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to look at it all the time and adjust and put it back. Right. Right. So, so it was a it was a dynamic situation so you, you all the time. Closer into the food itself. Yeah. You know. Uh, you know yes. And were were the were the chefs. Uh, the people in charge or the people that, the sous chefs, whomever, were they teaching you? Well, teaching you, like they tell you, do this, do that. And, and, uh, <laughs> about, yeah, and you do it by repeating what they are watching. doing. Watching. Yes, by watching most of the time. And I say more kind of osmosis, you know, at least until you were at the stove and so forth. And uh, after that, it starts changing a little bit. Right. And, and it's interesting, too, that when you arrived, you arrived in short pants, right? Yes, that was, I was small. I mean, I was, you know, I was very, I'm not very tall now, but <laughs> I was smaller. So, yes, I never had long pants. It was short pants, so my first long pants was the chef's pants. So that was very big. And they were checked, yes? Oh, they were checked, yes. Checker pants for the, the, the boy, yes, right. It's a great visual picture. But no recipes... Right? Recipe, no. Never. I mean, I, all through the reading that I've done, uh, when you were training as a, as a, in any of the restaurants you worked in, there were no recipes. No, uh, no recipe. You work in a different way. You went by conforming at that time. You work in a place, that's how you do it there. You test, you adjust, you test, you adjust, you go until you know exactly how to do it. And then you do one dish after another. Yet, uh, if I am somewhere and I do a chicken with, uh, with mushroom, cream sauce. If I do it 10 times tonight, 10 different orders during the night, if someone was behind me taking note exactly of what I'm doing, I'm not doing it one time exactly the same. Right. Yet it still comes exactly the same at the end. Why sometimes maybe the chicken is a bit thinner too, the pot is a bit hotter, it gets dry, you put two tablespoons of water, you do that, you taste, adjust, taste, adjust, that type of work, you know. So, yeah, that's how, and I remember, as I said, I can close my eye and eat my mother's chicken and cream sauce. Those are kind of visceral dishes, but I also would remember the lobster souffle at the Plaza Athene in Paris, or the, the, the chicken pavillon I did at the pavillon when I came here. Mm -hmm. So you work in those restaurants and you, you conform, learn how to do those dishes, and they, 
Yeah, they stay in your room. Right, right. Um, there's also a, a story you tell uh, that's really quite lovely of being awakened one night uh, at the restaurant. Oh. A waitress comes in and tells you, "Yeah, right. You're the cook. Yeah, You're the chef." Probably the the second year after I was at the store. So you're so, you're what, 14, 15 years yeah, old? About 14 and a half, 15 years. And uh, so uh, the chef has left by then, but some people came from Paris, I suppose, and uh, so the waitress, Adele, I still remember, came and looked at the door. That was the oldest apprentice. I'm not the oldest, but I mean the oldest by, by uh, practice, you know. Mm -hmm. So they say, you got to come down. It's four people for dinner, so I go down and I go at the stove. Fortunately, there was still some, some uh, heat in the, in the stove that I stopped. And uh, I remember they started with pate, so I said, great, just have to slice it, to arrange it, to find the... But after that, they had the chicken in tarragon, so which was a specialty of course there. So uh, I, I did it, and uh, so to eat, I remember, and finish it up too. And then she took it to the dining room, and. Uh, I was behind the door. There was a little door with a round <laughs> And But those people somehow say, we like to say, can we say hello to the chef? Which is unknown, unknown home at that 14 time. years old. So wow. I came into the dining room with the waitress. They look at me and say, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the chef. I thought my first touch with celebrity cooking. <laughs> <laughs> so... I guess one of the questions that occurred to me uh, as I was reading and just sort of thinking about this was, where, where did the confidence come from at, at, what, at such an early point in your life where you said, I know what my life's path is, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? I mean, the confidence in the kitchen itself comes from practice, 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 practice. You know, it become a almost a DNA for you, you know, to, to know how to do a certain type of thing. You can do it close eye and so forth. It's a question of practice. As I said, three years of apprenticeship, you know, you don't start working at the stove for like a year and a half. Right. So you do a lot of uh, repeat and repeat. And after that, uh, I wanted to uh, work in other places. At that time, they end up in Paris because Paris you are still the, the greatest place I mean to be and so forth. So it's the center. Yeah, I wanted to go and all the great restaurants in Paris from Maxime Fouquet. I work at the Plaza Athenee, Maurice and so forth in the 50s. So I worked in Paris for like seven years, seven, eight years. And one of the things that uh, struck me throughout all this is that wherever you were, you always continued to learn. Oh, yeah. Learning, learning, learning. You wanted to know more. I'm 87 now, I'm still learning. <laughs> so, yeah, if I work with anyone, you know, you always learn something. Sometimes you learn what not to do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. So you're working in Paris, you're working in a succession of restaurants, very, very famous restaurants, and you're drafted. Yeah, well, in Paris, I work in, well, at the Plaza Athenee mostly for like, six and a half, seven years to, but I work in probably close to a hundred restaurants in Paris. Whoa. Because I work my day off. You know, my day off, I go to what's called La Société des Cuisines de Paris, Society of the Chef of Paris. Right. And you remember, you come there, and you have your name. Um, and there is an organization who I always thought should exist in New York. You need someone for the day, someone didn't come. You get, so you have a job for a day, two days. This is a great idea, right. So, uh, 
I work my day off for years, so I work in many, many restaurants. So you never knew I end up in the Galerie Lafayette where I was serving 4,000 meals, which was just putting a, a, a plate with a piece of salad on top, another plate with a salad. <laughs> right. You know, that type of work. So you never know you end up here or you end up in a three-star restaurant. Right. So that type of uh, working this way, you teach a lot, you know. But, but you also frequented libraries as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah. You would go well, to the at, library. At the Plaza Athenee, it, it was a great place for that. We had a, a small boat on, on the Seine River. We had a soccer team. And we had a big library for the employee. Uh, yeah, that was very good. So but, not, uh, but not just books about cooking, no, also? No. I think I still have one book uh, that I, last week, which was... Uh, which was uh, um, um, a classic old book that I stole there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we've all done that at some point. Yeah. The human comedy. Yes. So, oh. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Comedy human. All right. So then you're drafted into the the navy. Right. And you, how did you end up cooking in the navy? Uh, because uh, the navy in France is is very special like that. Usually it's only a, a enlisted guy. Except for the tech cook and people like that, professional. Yeah. But each of the different ships, you go in there, you'll go to the market, you have a budget with so much to spend per person. You go to the market, uh, have to buy that, work with different people too, and they expect for the holiday to have lobster, to have this, to have you know, fancy food. So you have to keep, so they, not, they want professional chef if they can find some. Mm -hmm. So when they had an organization with the Société of Chefs there, so the chef very often end up in the in the navy. So at that time, you know, it was uh, you know, I was drafted. Uh, it was a normal time or eighteen months, and uh, I ended up staying twenty eight months because it was a war in Algeria. So at that time, so they were keeping three more months, three more months. So uh, I end up uh, doing my um, my time. I mean, starting my, my training and so forth. And then after that, I was supposed to go, I was scheduled to go to Algeria. Uh, but then my brother was there, and, and he was not listed like me. Mm -hmm. So they didn't send two draftees at yeah. the same time of the same family because right. it had problems where there were like three or four brothers. Right. So uh, my brother was in Algeria, so I went sent back to Paris to, uh, to the, the mess of the admiral. Paris, so I started cooking there too, and eventually I went to work for the president. But then fortune changed. Right, yes. And you ended up cooking for whom? Well, I, uh, yes, I work with three presidents in France. The first one was Félix Gaillard. Under the Fourth Republic, the government were changing at a relatively rapid pace. So I think his government was about six months, uh, something like that. Then FIMLA, I feel that when the mayor of Bordeaux became the prime minister, too, right. which lasted only a couple of months, there was kind of a, an happy valley in France with Algeria and so forth, and then came uh, General de Gaulle, so I started with de Gaulle. Uh, so you were came, Charles de Gaulle's right. cook? Right, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and his wife? Yeah, Tante Yvonne, they call it Aunt Yvonne. Aunt Yvonne, she yeah. Me, she called me Petit Jacques. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did the menu with her on Monday, the week, uh, and uh, except, you know, I serve people like Eisenhower at the time, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, the head of state. So whenever they were visiting, yeah, visiting. So <laughs> dignitaries. At that time, dinner like this are set up by the protocol. 
you know, so it depends, like for Eisenhower, for example, they already had married the French president, so they say you cannot repeat that fish, they already had that fish there. The menu has to be long, the menu has to be short, the menu has to be 45 minutes. So, you know, you work with a protocol to, to suggest a couple of menus right. and so forth. But except for that, then the other menu I did with Madame de Gaulle the rest of the week, certainly on Sunday, they were very devout uh, Catholics. So uh, after church, they were the children, grandchildren, and all that. Every Sunday, uh, that we cook for like eight, ten. And I have to say that for that special dinner on Sunday, but the goal, she, I had to give a special accounting. They would pay from their own pocket mm -hmm. because they said that's our dinner. So which was a drop of water in what we spent, but, yeah, but still, but a question of principle with the with the generality. What was the goal's favorite dish? Well, he loves uh, Colin, which is a kind of a striped bass that poached, leg of lamb, for example, stuff like that. Not too rare, man. The gold says, no good for his blood. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, things like that. Apple tart, very classic. Uh, sort classic of, yeah. Down, down home food. Yes. Uh, and when you left, he gave you a gift. Yes. Called me to his room with his wife said, give me that big cigar. Smoke a cigar to my health. <laughs> I could say that now, right? <laughs> so, so after the service, uh, what was happening then? I We're, went back to the Plaza Atene for a few months, and then I uh, had a chef there that I met, an old pastry chef uh, who had worked in Chicago, in America. I said, oh, you got to go to America. And I said, I want to go to America. America was... You know, the jazz, to it was the, the golden fleece uh, still. And uh, so, most immigrants, of course, come to America to get a better life. I mean, uh, better money, to, or for economic reason, but often for religious reason, uh, racial reason, or the type of... The, mm -hmm. I didn't really have any of this, and I didn't intend to stay. I said, I'm going to go there for a year, maybe two years, <laughs> and come back, you know, so... That's over 60 years. Uh, it's, it's been a little while, yes. And, and you landed right away uh, a, a job. Oh, yes. So, uh, there was a lot of jobs. And, uh, and at the Pavillon, the Pavillon was considered the greatest French restaurant in right. New York. And uh, so the guy who sponsored me at a little restaurant called La Toque Blanche, the White Hat, on 50th and 1st Avenue. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but he didn't need me at that point. So he took me to Pierre Frenet, I mean, the, at the Pavillon the day after, and uh, the, said, you want to start tomorrow? The famous chef, Pierre yeah. Frenet, yeah. 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 and you worked with him for some time there, no, yes? I worked with him for, for 12 years, because after we worked for Howard Johnson together. So. Right, and, and uh, one of the things always that, that fascinates me, too, is that wherever you are, you adapt, and you don't make judgments about the food uh, there are things that American foods, for instance, when you would go to visit Pierre Frenet's right. home, and, and they were eating various things that were very American. Oh, sure. uh, you, you didn't put up, you know, no, it your nose. Great. It was great, wasn't you? If you open your mind, you always learn something different and something new and great. Uh, yeah, no what, what, what were your favorite discoveries, American well, discoveries? Lobster, I mean, lobster in France uh, exists, I mean, uh, in the... In, uh, the langoust, we call, which is the spiny lobster, as well as the lobster like we have here in, in Brittany and Germany, 
in the Brittany or Normandy, but very, very expensive or a very special occasion. I don't think we ever had it at home. He avoid a sandwich, sandwich with lobster in it. Yeah. Just a, whoa. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. you know, from lobster to uh, certainly discover stuff like clams. I didn't know clams, uh, oyster. Right. Uh, so, yeah. But also, but also, it fascinated me that you, dis- the things that you discovered, like Oreos. Oh, Oreo cookie. Well, that was great. I was with uh, Pierre's wife. She had two little kids, and in breakfast, I stayed there. So in the morning, I said, what are you eating? So they had those, those uh, uh, Oreo cookie and those, those rice crispy into right. th- those little box yeah. that you made a hole in it, put milk in it. I thought, oh, that was great. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I love that. I still like it. Yeah. I still like it. I made it not too long ago. I mixed chocolate, uh, milk chocolate, oh. mi- mixed with, uh, with the rice crispy, you know, and do a tablespoon of that. I do for my granddaughter and all that. <laughs> this is Jacques Pepin, by the way. <laughs> Just remember that, okay? Uh, <laughs> now, something very important in your life happened uh, after a time when you were working with Pierre Frenet, and a job offer came along to Pierre, right? Oh, yeah. From? From the White House. Right. No, no, from Howard Johnson. From Howard Johnson, yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, Mr. Johnson, Howard D. Johnson, was the uh, one who created the company. Well, a, a, a regular at the pavilion, and he decided to hire Pierre to try to, uh, you know, revamp restaurant, do new things, right. uh, create new ideas, and so forth. So uh, Pierre, at that time, there was problem with Soule, who was the owner of the pavilion, and so forth. So uh, Pierre left and went to work for Howard Johnson. Right, but at the same time, uh, Joseph Kennedy used to eat at the pavilion yeah, as well, yeah, right? The whole Kennedy clan ate at the pavilion. And, and uh, so you had, at one point, if I'm correct, two different job offers, one from Howard Johnson's right. and one from the Kennedys to go to the White House. Yes, well... And yeah, you chose... Pierre yeah, wanted me to come with him at Howard Johnson, and then I was asked to go to the White House, yes. So uh, I went to Howard Johnson. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to look at it in the context of the time. Yeah. As I said uh, before... The cook was at the bottom of the social scale. You know, any good mother would have wanted her child to marry a lawyer, certainly not a cook. I was, when I was with the uh, Gaulle in France, um, as I said, I survived on the way on the road. Never, never once would anyone have called you to the dining room for kudo. I mean, are you kidding? That did not exist. The cook was in the kitchen in the back that said, I never had an interview with television, very existed, but and I tell you, the newspaper, magazine, that did not exist, period. So there was that type of thing. So when I was asked to go to the White House, uh, I had started doing a lot of things in, in, in New York. I was going to Colombia. I, was doing, I didn't really want to move again, but I did not really realize the potential because the cook... So finally, the one who went there was a friend of mine, René Verdon. He was a sous-chef at the Essex House at the time, and I called him and... Eventually, he got the job at the White House. And uh, maybe a year or two later, he sent me a picture of him with President Kennedy and so forth, <laughs> or Mrs. Kennedy. Too. Rubbing it in. That was no, totally new. It was the early 60s, women liberation. Or getting, I think we're exploding in a different way. Because I ask, if you ask, who was the chef at the White House before René Verdon? Well, that was told it was a black lady from the South. 
Oh, one would have known her name, don't want her name, my name or any other name. Mm -hmm. So uh, the decision I took, you have to look at it in that context. It was not a very noble decision. It was just, I mean, so would the... But, but also, it was a, 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 an opportunity to expand your knowledge. Oh, absolutely. Which absolutely. is something that you have done all of your life. Yeah, I mean... Like, I... You went to Colombia yes. to, to, to learn English and then went on to earn a degree at Colombia. Sure, but... Uh, you know, I was in 1960, 1970, 10 years, you know. Uh, I never wrote a recipe before. And there I was director of research, development, new recipe, working in restaurants and so forth. Uh, when I left Howard Johnson, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue in New York mm. called La Potagerie, right. mass production of food. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum. We served 30,000 people a day on the commissary that I set up. And I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room. I'm saying all of that. I would never have been able to do any of those jobs right. without Howard Johnson. As a French chef, I didn't know that type of production, right. marketing, chemistry of food, American eating habit, and so forth. So, yeah, I learned a great deal. At, uh, uh, and also, you surprised a lot of your friends, didn't you, oh, when, <laughs> with, with Howard Johnson's? Of course. Andre Saltner, you know, from Lutes. You know, this is one of, the, yeah, one of the great restaurants yeah. in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, they were at home, and I gave them, I said, well, that's a good stew. It was frozen from Howard Johnson, too. <laughs> yeah. My wife, too. <laughs> uh, and, and also interesting, and this is something that uh, we need to keep in mind, is that during that time, these, these uh, there weren't that many, but the, the Howard Johnson's all over the country, there weren't restaurants like... Uh, uh, Howard Johnson's every, I mean, there were, but, but like Red Lobster or, or restaurants yeah. where the food uh, quality is yeah. the same everywhere yeah. in the chain. I and that was one of your jobs. Yes. I, uh, in 2000, uh, Time Magazine uh, did um, uh, an issue or two issues on the 100 most important people of the 20th century. And it started with... Uh, with uh, uh, Henry Ford, right. this with Bill Gates, I think. One of them was Ray Kroc in the middle, who created McDonald's. Well, I had met Ray Kroc several times with Mr. Johnson doing different functions. And as I wrote you know, the article on him, uh, uh, doing some research, I realized that in 1964-5, uh, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's, and Burger King, the three of them were smaller than Howard Johnson. Mm. Howard uh, Johnson was the people who served the most people in America after the American Army in wow. terms of volume. Wow. So it was a big company. We had, you know... It was extraordinary. Hotel, yeah. And restaurant. Exactly, exactly. Uh, then, uh, was it after Howard Johnson's that you met Craig Claiborne? Well, I, I met Craig Claiborne a few weeks after I was in America. Oh, okay. In You know, the, it was... the food world was very, very small. Craig came to the pavilion to do a piece on the pavilion, and I met him, and he introduced me to Helen McCullough, who was the food editor of McCall, how beautiful. She, in turn, introduced me to James Beard, as she spoke with him, like, two hours every day, and then to Julia. So six months after I was here, I knew... You knew all these people? The trinity of cooking. Wow. Craig Claiborne, Julia Charles, James Beard. Right. So you, the food world was very, very small. Small then, yeah. Uh, for, for those of my listeners who are not familiar who, with who Craig Claiborne was, he was the food critic for the New York Times, right? Yeah. yeah. And the Probably most influential 
food critic in the country. Maybe more influential than any other people. Yeah, yeah. And, and you became close friends, and one of, the, one of the meals that I was fascinated by was something that you guys call the greatest picnic of all time. Can oh, you yes, describe that? That Craig uh, also, you know, he did my wedding also. I mean, at my wedding at Craig, where they were the chef of the White House, mm. you know, Pierre Frenet, Roger Fessaguet, and me were cooking in the kitchen like an hour before, <laughs> before, before the wedding. <laughs> in an hour. So, uh, yes, and we did a picnic on Gardner's Island. You know, Mr. Gardiner, the 16th Lord of the Manor on the other side there. So this is Long Island? Yes, yeah. Gardner's Island. So we did, we, we, what boat we brought, all kind of food. We had over 100 people, and then we pick up uh, driftwood uh, on the thing and create a buffet. And we had uh, Baccarat Cristal, Dom Perignon Champagne, incredible. Whoa. I still remember because Craig was doing, he did that big piece in the New York Times, 1963, four, whatever. And, uh, uh, he wanted to have some flute, some Baccarat crystal. So he went on 57th Street at Baccarat there and said, well, I have the chef of the White House, I have the former chef of the Gaulle, I have the chef of the... We're doing that dinner there. I need, you know, uh, 4,000 of, uh, of uh, Baccarat crystal glass, can you? He said, no, you have to buy them. We don't, we don't turn out. So he said, but we will give them back. We will reimburse you if you bring them back and touch. So he got all of those all of those uh, Baccarat right. glass. And I remember we carry back forth all kind of food from his house on the other side too. And I think we broke one glass. So, so all the rest of it, he wash up and clean up and put them on this counter. And during the night, there was a big platter on the wall which broke and followed those. Everything was... Everything. Everything was killed. Oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, but back, back to the, the actual meal. Uh, oh, yes. uh, the, the, you dug a hole in the ground, yes? Yes, so we did that. Yeah, a big picnic, a big... Uh, 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 but it wasn't just lobsters, was it? it was no, a... no, we had chicken, we had lobster, we had rack of lamb, we had all kind of things, but a kind of, uh, you know, what do you call it? Um, with a fire pit, yeah. Yeah, so with a fire with a clam bake type of thing. Right, so. which a lot of folks here are probably familiar with, yeah. Well, it sounded like it was, uh, I wish I'd been there. Uh, so, so then you, you did La Potagerie, uh, you got a BA degree from Columbia, uh, uh, and you also helped create, uh, we were talking about this earlier because my, my son is a graduate of the French Culinary Institute, and Jacques is one of the founders. How did that come about? Well, uh, Dorothy Kahn, uh, who created the French Culinary Institute, went to France with her father, created some kind of professional school, air conditioning, all kind of, and she went to France with a group of people like this and went to Le Ferrand in Paris, one of the biggest cooking schools, and said, well, we have to have something like that in America. Mm -hmm. So she came back and decided to create the French Culinary Institute. And at the beginning, she had some of the teachers from Le Ferrand coming to to New York, and uh, after that, uh, she hired me uh, in the late 80s, something like that. And then Andre Saltner, to Alain So the who's who, yeah, became associated with it. Sadly, as Jacques t told me, the French Colonial Institute is closed because so, of the yes. pandemic, ultimately. Yes. Uh, as you've gotten older, and it happens, <laughs> yes, <laughs> how has your approach to cooking changed? Ooh. Uh, 
you know, your metabolism change, and uh, when you are younger, I mean, you tend to work and add to the plate and add more and more and more, and when you're older, you remove it. <laughs> but to be, to be left with something maybe more essential, and, uh, you know, if it's summer and uh, I have a beautiful tomato in my garden at the right temperature, dash of salt on top, a bit of olive oil, I don't need much embellishment you know, anymore. So, you know, it, it's simpler. I cook a lot, you know, for myself now. So I cook a lot of soup, stuff. Yes, simple one. And to, to you, uh, I know you talk about, uh, at times, the difference between home cooking and professional cooking. Right. Uh, is it, because we're, we're an audience, and I'm including myself, and we're home cooks. Um, almost all of us. Me too. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Uh, all right, so I'll be more specific. How, what's, the, what's the perfect way to cook a chicken? I grew up uh, thinking that 350 degrees, you put the chicken in, you baste it, etc., etc. But uh, heat is more important, yes? No, you can do it this way. You can do it faster. You can do it slower, but you have to... I tend to, uh, to put it on the side solid because uh, I also tend to do a little cut between the drumstick and the thigh because that's where it stays a little red so I don't have to overcook the breast uh, because of that and basting it. But uh, uh, yeah, it's not only one way of cooking a chicken properly. You know, you, you, if you baste it, if you cook it at very high temperature, we had those arguments with Julia all the time. She cooked it. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. And, uh, and both were good, so. I get, getting to this, this extraordinary book, and uh, you all saw the, the amazing paintings, and that's just a sample of the paintings that are in this book. When did the painting start? Well, to do that book, I did not want to do a cookbook. I have to you just wanted to do a book I on wanted art? to do a book of my drawing of a panning of chicken. And, uh, and then, of course, when I started saying, it's okay, can we have a recipe with it? I said, no. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, fine. I will tell you a story about eggs, a story about chicken from West Africa to, to whatever. So that's basically what I did. So it's not, it's not a good book. I started planning when I went to Colombia. See, I went to Colombia in 1959. I came here a few weeks after I was here. I was at Colombia, mm -hmm. enrolled in English for foreign students. And I stayed here until 1973. Uh, I gave a doctoral dissertation, which they refused, so I left uh, to the history of food. At that time, they said, are you crazy? Food? <laughs> so, got another world. And uh, so, uh, uh, I took one class in sculpture, I think, growing at, at, uh, at Columbia. And then at that point, uh, coincidentally, in the early 60s, a whole bunch of friends of us, we rented a house in Woodstock, upstate New York, so with a kind of a, you know, artist community, so we started redoing all furniture and painting and so forth, and it started. But also, I was married 54 years, you know, for 54 years, when people came to my house, we wrote the menu, I wrote the menu down on one page, and people say funny thing on the other page, or I come at some time, we have a great bottle of wine, we stick the label in it. Sometimes mm -hmm. I wrote the music, was playing, and so forth. Uh, so I have 12 books that stick of, uh, of, uh, of half a century of, uh, of memory of with my mother, my two brothers, all of those people. And in fact, Claudine, my daughter, 
you know, she didn't know mid 50, and she came a few weeks ago to the house. She said, What did I eat for my third birthday? I said, Let's look. <laughs> so, and you know, we find we a find wow. third birthday, she drew chicken. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, this is a whole life, you know, memory. And I started illustrating those and illustrating often with a lot of chicken. And right. So that's kind of what the genesis starting planning more. Well, they are just extraordinary, and the, the book is amazing, and I thank you for it, as, I, as we all do. Uh, I have one last question that I ask everybody on my podcast. If there's one food experience that brings back the days in Bresse with your mother, right. uh, what's the one thing that is most evocative? Probably... Air chicken, air chicken with cream and tarragon, and my father, strong cheese. <laughs> yeah, that would bring me back. Uh, yeah, those, those, you know, those, those recipes or those tastes, rather, are very kind of visceral. I mean, for me, coming out of school, uh, the greatest place for a child is in the kitchen, you know, the smell. They are the yeah. noise of the, the, the instrument, the voice of your mother, father, and so forth. That stay with you uh, the rest of your life, you know. And when Claudine was a year and a half old, I hold her in my arm and I said, hey, Minos, stir it. So she stirred it. So she yeah. quote, eat it because she made it. I mean, <laughs> she stirred it. And likewise with my granddaughter. When my granddaughter was four or five years old, she did many shows with me. But I put her next to me at the store. I said, give me the salad. Okay, you think it's clean? Well, let's get some parsley in the garden. So we go. I said, test it. That's not parsley. That's child. Test, that's tarragon. That's mm-hmm. it. Test it. Then I take her to the market. I said, get me some tomato. Are they ripe? Do you think they're ripe? Did you smell them? Those pears are not ripe. Yeah. You know, she touched the food, touched the food, come back, sit next to me, give me the food. And that, you know, create a, a platform on a conversation. And then, of course, we share the food. And... Continue. So for us, that has been the basic of, uh, uh, of discussion or the basic of understanding is through food very often. Yes, yeah. And it's, it's one of the things that holds families together. Right. And, and as you described, when you were in the Alps, uh, when everybody gathered for the, for the bread baking, that, that was part, part of the experience was not just the baking of the bread, but the community oh, that occurred when everybody got together and there was celebration. Right. And right. Yeah. You know, you go any place in the world. I remember with my wife traveling uh, in Yugoslavia uh, by car and in small mountain there. So people look at you behind their curtain, mm-hmm. for foreigners. They are foreign. and you stop in the village there without even knowing the language. All there by hand, to have a bottle of wine, wine, whatever food you have there. Within 15 minutes, you have people sitting around, standing looking at you, then you send them a bottle of wine. Yep. An hour later, you're talking in another language. Yes, <laughs> right. Uh, the universal language. You're, you're normal. I mean, you're eating food, their food, you're normal too. So, food, yeah, yeah do bring people together. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I can't think of a, a, a place to which uh, to end our conversation. Um, that's more apt than this one. Thank you, Jacques Pepin, for joining me for Cooking My Heart. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.